This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of January 20th, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 116 of Defender Radio. I'm quite excited about this episode, as it's one I've been hoping to produce for several weeks now. At APFA, we spend a lot of time behind the scenes, working with municipalities, providing literature to other groups and individuals, and generally being animal advocacy ninjas. Sometimes, it feels like our work is a little underwhelming. We don't often have huge victories to celebrate, as the political machines of Canada are slow to move. But every day we do see change, big and small, and it's time for us to celebrate that. This week we're speaking with some friends, supporters, and partners who have effected real change in the world around them and hope that it will serve as a reminder that every single voice can create change. If we're going to be talking about making change, we'd be remiss if we didn't include Our Hen House. The nonprofit, based in New York, was founded by Jasmine Singer and Mary Ann Sullivan to provide resources to animal advocates. Our Hen House has a weekly podcast, online magazine, and more, and is a regular visiting spot for many of our members. Joining us to talk about Our Hen House and positive change now are Jasmine and Mary Ann. Why don't we start off with a bit about Our Hen House and how you came to develop it? Sure. Thank you so much, Michael. We're so happy to be here. Our Hen House is a nonprofit that Marianne and I founded. We are in our fifth year now, and we have produced a podcast episode every single week since January 2010. So as I speak, we're on our 210th consecutive weekly episode. And in addition to that, because we're a multimedia hub for anyone who wants to change the world for animals. We also produce an online magazine with new content added every day. And we're just about to come out with an ebook publishing arm. And not to give too much away, but there is a TV show that will be starting soon as well. So basically, in short, we are trying to just create new inroads for anybody who cares about animals and wants to change the world for them in their own way, be that through legal means or through artistic means or grassroots or the media or academia, what have you. One of the things you're both known for is providing a lot of resources, information, and even with your sense of humor, a bit of relief for advocates. How important is that in what you do? Well, when we started our hen house, we were coming at it from an indefatigably positive standpoint because there's just so much to be angry and sad about. And we are angry and sad. And I think anyone who is awake and has their eyes open can feel that way, especially when you are exposed to the dark underbelly of what's going on for animals behind closed doors. But there's also a lot to celebrate. And there's a lot of positivity. There's a lot of um, opportunities for anybody to get involved with changing the world in a way that means something to them and that resonates with them. So I think that's where the positivity comes from. But don't get us wrong. We can definitely be snarky bitches on the show when we need to be, which is, I think, more and more. But I don't know what that's about. But the sense of humor, and I appreciate that you said that because, you know, we're not only vegan, but we're also lesbians. So, like, the whole vegan lesbians have no sense of humor. We're going to bash that stereotype. And I think that it's because we're just being true to our voices. 
the fact that we're being true to our voices is something that I hope other advocates bring to their own advocacy. We don't all need to conform to a suit wearing, you know, corporate type. We could all be who we are and still change the world for animals. Following that, I want to talk with you about that ability to change the world. I was a reporter and a newspaper editor, so speaking out like this is what I do. I have a voice that gets heard regularly. One of the things I try and point out is that it's the little victories that change the world, though, and I know that's something the two of you do a lot of profiling on. How important is it for people to make the little changes, and how do you get people to continue doing it and see it as a success? Oh, I... I... I mean, I'm not even sure I would call the things that people do little. Uh, it's incredibly important. That is how social change happens. It's, it's very important to support groups that are doing important things and to support the major animal rights groups. But they're not going to change the world. What changes the world is for people to change their own lives, for people to go vegan, for people to stop eating animals, and for people to spread the word. That's how people learn about things is from each other. That hasn't changed in spite of all of uh, the way the world has changed. Social change still happens person to person. And as a matter of fact, I would say that's even more important than it used to be because all of the opportunities for social networking that each of us have have given us, a, a, each of us, our, our voice. And we, we reach more people than we imagine. When you change the way you eat or the way you change your attitude towards animals, you have no idea of the number of people that you might be reaching. And when you when you do artwork that that teaches people about about animals or when you bring things up in your classroom you are reaching people even when you don't realize it that's when you go to the supermarket and ask somebody where the tempeh is instead of asking where the beef is somebody's noticing that everything you do people are noticing and that is exactly the way the world changes what should we say to people who are doubting their ability to change well i i I, I'm not sure people are should be doubting that anymore because things are changing and it's starting to become visible. At least in the world of vegan eating, we can see that the world is changing and that is growing. But I think one of the most important things to remind people of, of how to keep going is that this should not be a horrible sacrifice. There are so many things that you can do to change the world for animals that is actually going to add to your life. It's not going to be a horrible burden that you have to carry. It's actually living your beliefs. It's finding people who share your beliefs and enjoying their company. And if you stay positive and don't get morose all the time and don't watch too many videos that of, of horrible things happening to animals, just you know, pace yourself on, on introducing yourself to the brutality of the world and, and try to keep connected to people who really care about things and who are seeing the changes happen. Uh, there, You'd have to be blind to not be able to look around nowadays and not see that things are starting to shift. And, you know, you've got to want to be part of that shift. And I just want to add one thing to that, Michael. There's a new segment or a relatively new segment that actually just organically evolved on our podcast. And we like to call it Rising Anxieties. And I think that it speaks directly to what you're asking. We love to root around in the nonsense produced by the industry. and we frequently report on what it is, and we consider it to be absolute gold. We think the more and more bullshit they come out with, the more and more their anxieties are rising, and it's a direct backlash to us and to our efforts. And I think that that's a sign of positivity, and that's a sign of movement. And that is 
not only a strategy for Marianne and I in terms of our hope and how we see the world, but I think it's a very real shift that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. There are two groups of people who really know what's going on, and that's the animal abuse industries and the activists. And all those people in the middle just really don't know. And the animal abuse industries are getting very very nervous about the activists. If you read their materials, you'll see that. And they know that's because their businesses are built on lies. And they're built on lies that if they were revealed to the, to the mass public, the people who support them, those people would be very disturbed. And, and those lies are starting to come out. And things are going to shift. If you had one thing to say to the world about affecting change in the big picture, what would it be? Well, I think I might think to don't think too big picture. Uh, if, if you start thinking that you have to change the entire world, you might become paralyzed. You might become defeated before you even start. But if you think, I have to change what I'm doing, and I have to let the people around me know what I'm doing, and I have to live my life in accordance with my beliefs, and I have to do everything I can to live my life in a, in, in a way in which will help bring the world to the place where I want it to be, then it becomes something that you can not only do, but that you want to do, and that and that will make your life better. And by making your life better, you're going to change the world. Yeah, and I just want to add one thing to that, Michael. It's something you actually touched on before when you were talking about your own background in journalism and how you feel as though you have a voice. You're right. You do have a voice, and you have a very important voice, and everyone listening to this has a very important voice. And they don't necessarily need to have a podcast or need to have a public voice in order to be out there affecting change. That, to me, is part of the essence of what we talk about with our hen house. We can each do something in our own life that makes sense. And that could be as simple as baking a batch of vegan cupcakes for our office party and providing the recipe along with a Y vegan brochure. That is a step. That's something that we're doing. That's something we could rally behind. A lot of people who care about animals who might be listening to this, they think, animal activism involves a bullhorn or getting arrested and and sometimes it does but very frequently it doesn't it's it's starting conversations as Marianne was saying it's it's food activism like the cupcakes it's it's incorporating something about ethics onto your food blog it's it's bringing an assignment to your classroom that involves animals and the way we think about it this is the new kind of advocacy and this is how we are going to reach a mass movement for change to hear more from Jasmine and Marianne, visit Our Hen House online at ourhenhouse.org. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. 
Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. This is Defender Radio. It's not news to most of us that conditions at marine parks aren't ideal. But to many, they've always been a fun day for the family. When SeaWorld announced numerous popular musicians were booked to play the park, petitions calling for cancellation started up. One, directed at singer-songwriter Willie Nelson, was started by AFA supporter Danielle Legg. She joins us now to talk about how a little petition made a big splash. How did you first get involved and interested in the issue surrounding parks like SeaWorld? Um, I kind of have always known that, you know, marine parks exist, and I've always, not always thought there was something wrong with it. In fact, I actually wanted to visit a marine park. It wasn't until I decided to go vegan and really started learning more about how wrong it was, um, and then participating with Marineland Animal Defense and going to the demonstrations. And their demonstration on opening day, I want to say last year was the first time I've ever been inside a marine park. And everyone was shouting, shut it down. And it was so hard for me to even get my voice out because I just, I couldn't, I could not believe the dolphins and the tanks. And they were just filming and they're beautiful animals and they're in these tanks, like the equivalent of me, not even me in a bathtub. Like it was just really huge to wrap your head around like, you found out that Willie Nelson was going to be playing at SeaWorld. What happened at that point? So I found out that Willie Nelson was going to be playing at SeaWorld, and because of the really um, accessibility of Blackfish, and just knowing that this is wrong, and that SeaWorld has really been struggling after the film, I thought he's someone who's really active with activism and with a lot of um, social rights things and, and a lot of other... He's an environmentalist as well, so I thought... Why not target him and say, hey, you know, you're into all of these things. Why are you playing at SeaWorld? And I don't think it's a great idea. Um, so I honestly, you know, got the petition started. I wasn't really expecting much. The Bare Naked Ladies um, had begun talk, to talk about maybe pulling out of their performance, but that hadn't been confirmed yet. And then their performance was canceled and confirmed. And two days after I started my petition, I saw that 2,000 people had signed it. And I was just like, whoa. I wonder if anything is going to come of this. And when, you know, a week later, he was saying, I'm not going to be performing at SeaWorld. And then he was on CNN that Friday saying, I'm not playing at SeaWorld. And I actually don't like how zoos and aquariums treat animals. That was huge. And he actually attributed that to the petitions and him not liking the way that the animals are treated. So that was amazing. And it started a landslide of, I think nine artists now, including Willie Nelson and Bare Naked Ladies, have decided not to play at SeaWorld. So it's pretty incredible. Willie Nelson, a massively successful singer-songwriter, heard your petition, followed up on it, and even went on CNN to talk about it. What goes through your head when you look at that? It's really amazing. I mean, I think I still kind of pinch myself. Like, did that actually happen? Like, Willie Nelson really isn't playing. And just recently, unfortunately, I don't know the name of the artist, but... 
there is now one artist that remains that hasn't canceled from their original booking. And so I still kind of pinch myself when I see that. Like, I cannot believe that, you know, a petition that really didn't take too long to get put together. Um, Poon and Modi was amazing and, like, helping me to get the language right. Um, and just that that has really changed things. And it's been incredible to see SeaWorld releasing information like, oh, you know, we do conservation and we do rescue. And, you know, if you don't go to our parks, what are you going to do? And they actually released this statement basically to the effect of, like, these people could have seen a really good show, but because of a few misguided people, these people are missing shows. And it's like, um, are these singers, like, quitting? Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing to see, like, take that to world, you know, and it's not just a few misguided people. Like, I think that their staff... I believe they said they had 1,500 scientists and, like, 9,000, over 9,000 people signed one petition, and thousands more are signing all of these other petitions. So it's not just a couple of misguided people. You know, I would say that the misguided few are the people who are being paid by SeaWorld to say that what they're doing is okay. Because, um, you know, I posted on my Facebook, like, just because you say that it isn't so, when you're picking the people to back you up and paying them to back you up, why would anyone believe that? You know, it, it doesn't make sense. People get really down and feel like they can't make a change, that starting a petition won't do anything. What do you say to those people? I think anything that you can do, no matter what the scale, be that even just something that you're doing for yourself or something that turns into something huge, like a petition, Anything that you do can change the world for animals, and we're seeing that. We're seeing it in petitions. We're seeing it in a 12-year-old who's getting arrested at SeaWorld, you know, not at SeaWorld, but getting arrested at um, parades because she's not going to stand silently. She is one person, but she's waking up a ton of people who are saying, you know, why is this 12-year-old so passionate about this, and why is she putting herself out there? Her mother was arrested for, like, endangerment or something i mean it's crazy and it's waking people up and saying like you can do anything to change the world for animals and also i think knowing that you're not alone that you're not the only person fighting matters and i think that a lot of people get down because they don't know that or you know they start to feel that they're alone or they live in like wisconsin or you know somewhere where there aren't a lot of people around so knowing you know you're not alone there are so many other people fighting with you and always know that Thanks for joining us, Danielle, and thanks for all of your hard work. Joining us now for a new weekly segment is Brad Gates to talk a bit about wildlife in the winter. Wild in the City with Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Hey Brad, what are animals like raccoons, squirrels, skunks, and bats up to in the winter months? When we're into freezing temperatures, um, different animals rely on, on different survival strategies. When there's a fair amount of snow on the ground, um, the raccoons recognize that it's not advantageous to move around looking for food because it's all either frozen solid or under the snow. So they tend to hold up. They'll find a, a warm spot um, amongst the insulation in an attic, and they go into a deep sleep. Um, they're not true hibernators where they're not, uh, their heart rate isn't slowing down. Um, they're just trying to maintain uh, a decent body temperature, and um, and if they're lucky, they they put on enough fat from the uh, the fall months.
to survive extended cold periods like we've experienced this year. Um, with respect to squirrels, they're, they're active year-round, but when we do get into the minus 15s to 20, they will also um, curl up in an attic and, and not expend um, much energy uh, moving about. But uh, once you get into the minus 10s and, and thereabouts, they don't uh, they don't sit still. They go out. They're, they have their food for the most part. The gray eastern gray squirrel has buried their food under the under the ground. So and it's remarkable how um, how good they are at finding that food. I've actually watched them in my own backyard uh, walking over top of the snow, and all of a sudden they start to dig down and up. They come with a peanut. So their sense of smell or memory, whatever it is. Um, allows them to, to find what they've stored. Um, with respect to skunks, they're a lot like the raccoons. Again, they're not true hibernators. They don't go into that uh, for metabolic rate. They, um, and they'll, they'll hold up with their uh, either their relatives or other skunks. It's not uncommon to see four or five skunks in a den site at this time of the year. Um, so they, they wait for good weather days because they know, again, that food isn't available and, and why use that energy if uh, you don't need to. And then I guess the, the last species affected um, by the cold temperatures are bats. Uh, what tends to happen with bats is they go into a hibernation mode called torpor. Um, their heart will beat maybe one beat a minute. Um, so they're completely out of it. And they're, they're obviously reserving, because um, they're such a small animal, they don't have a lot of fat reserves, so they're trying to uh, not expend uh, much energy at all. And they're, they'll overwinter in the walls of homes. They're looking to find um, an area that is about 2 degrees Celsius, plus 2 degrees Celsius, in order to survive. If, if their temp body temperature was to drop below freezing, um, they would freeze to death and die. What happens when we've had a serious thaw like we recently experienced? Um, raccoons tend to take that as a, a sign that they should be mating. So they'll wake up, even though the ground still might be covered in snow. Um, their goal is not necessarily food, but they will they'll certainly take it if they can find it. But their primary objective is to find a mate. And the males will be on the move to find uh, a female, and they'll search out den sites that they know um, that they've either encountered females in the past, and they'll approach that female. It's, it's quite a, a ritual that goes on between a, a male raccoon and a female. He needs to pursue her for a period of a few days before she'll actually uh, go into estrus and accept him. And in the process, the female is quite aggressive towards um, the male. And at this time of the year, we'll be pulling male raccoons out of chimneys that are completely banged up. Um, their ears will be shredded from bites from the female. Uh, they'll be missing large uh, patches of fur on their sides. Open wounds are common in, on their body. And because they're polygamous, they'll mate with as many females as they can. Um, they don't certainly don't mate for life. Male will go from female to female. Um, you can imagine after a couple of weeks of, of going through this ritual, if you will, um, they can sustain some pretty serious injuries, but uh, it's, it's a driving force within them to do it, and uh, they don't think twice about the harm that's coming to them. Um, with respect to squirrels, again, the, the January thaw is um, a trigger for them to go out and start mating, 
and um, homeowners will notice that they'll be chasing uh, males will be chasing females in the treetops and this uh, again this chasing um, is part of the process to get the female to accept the male and it can go on for, for hours and then finally she'll she'll give in and, and the squirrel uh, the male will be able to mate with her and um, then he'll go on and uh, and mate with another um, another female if he can find her an interesting thing about squirrels when they mate is um, a wax plug develops in the female so that once she has mated with one male squirrel uh, another male cannot mate with her um, it's simply uh, she's she's closed up for business and uh, that's uh, that's the end of her but other males will still try to to approach her but will be unsuccessful um, with skunks uh, they're they're interesting in the sense that um, they also come out in January to mate uh, when we get that, uh, the temperatures around zero, but they have the ability of what they call delayed implantation, which means she will mate with a male, um, the egg will get fertilized, but the egg will not be planted in the uterus until conditions are favorable. So, and that's generally once we get a, a good thaw in April or May, and the insects are out for them to feed on. Because if, if it doesn't make sense for them to start nurturing a baby within them if they can't actually um, get food to support that. So it's a, a unique characteristic. Um, and, and bats as well have that ability. Um, bats actually mate before they go into hibernation in the fall. Uh, they find the mate um, get pregnant or get the egg gets fertilized. And they won't as well allow the egg to implant until uh, the warmer months of usually May or June before it gets warm enough for them to actually emerge from the den and, and come out. Um, the one thing about bats that we see at this time of the year when we do get that thaw is they, because they're trying to maintain that plus two degrees Celsius, when it gets too warm outside, their bodies tend to warm up too much and they need to stay in that hibernation mode. So within a house, they start to move looking for that plus two degree uh, variant. And if they can't find it, what often happens is they emerge inside the house. They actually come completely out of hibernation and start traveling within the walls and they'll pop out quite often in the basement. So we get a lot of calls this time of year when that thaw occurs um, where bats are now found flying inside the house and it, it is an indication uh, to the homeowner that they do have a colony in their walls or in their attic and something needs to be done in the spring when when they are moving but um, yeah so the thaw um, can be uh, detrimental to a bat if it uh, comes out of hibernation and ends up using too much of its body fat and then um, if it goes back into hibernation it can actually die because it doesn't have enough fat reserves to get through um, until May when, when the insects are open for it to feed. To find out more about Brad or contact Gates Wildlife Control, visit gateswildlifecontrol.com. Wild in the City with Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. 
Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. This is Defender Radio. We often hear from members who need some of our literature to help in their education efforts. One such member was Sarah, a hospital employee in southern Ontario. A few weeks ago, we received a letter back from Sarah with some incredible news. Sarah, whose full name won't be used for confidentiality reasons, joins us now to talk about her success in the workplace. How did you get involved with APFA and become aware of our Fur Free campaign? Um, well, I think I actually first learned about um, the Fur Free program. It was probably uh, maybe 10 or so years ago, and it was at a local uh, animal welfare group event uh, that I went to. And since then, uh, my involvement with the group has pretty much been a family affair. Like, my father and my aunt and myself have all been uh, very involved through both membership and through donating to the organization. What was the chain of events that led to you discovering fur products at your workplace? Um, Well, I've actually been working at the hospital for um, over 10 years now, so I go in quite frequently to the gift shop to do shopping and I've never ever come across any any um, genuine fur items but I went in to do some Christmas shopping and they had um, some genuine fur trimmed uh, gloves and some hats so that was actually how I came across the, uh, the items for sale in the gift shop. How did you react when you realized that real fur products were being sold and what did you do about it? Yeah so um, obviously, like my first reaction, I was extremely upset. I didn't um, confront anyone in the store. I just, I was visibly upset and I, I left and kind of put together a plan in my mind of what what action I wanted to take and how maybe I could step in and um, make a difference in the situation. So I thought that the best thing to do would be to put together a letter um, asking the gift shop to make a compassionate decision to stop selling fur in their shop. So um, I reached out to the Fur Bear Defenders for help and asked, asked for any materials or any pamphlets that um, you guys could provide me with that I could include with my letter. And then basically I just summarized uh, why this issue is so important to me. Um, and yeah. I just put together some uh, some facts about um, 
outlining the horrors that animals in the fur trade industry are subjected to, and I submitted that to the manager of the gift shop. Your incredibly well-written letter got you the best possible outcome. How did you react to that? Um, I was absolutely overjoyed. I actually couldn't believe it. I really expected to be in for um, more of a, a fight. I anticipated having to... Um, maybe start an intra-hospital petition to have some of the items removed. But uh, I really need to commend that the manager of the gift shop because within an hour of receiving my letter, I, I got a phone call from her. I also got an email. Her and her staff actually went through all of the inventory in the gift store and um, pulled out all of the items containing genuine fur. She was under the impression that the items were actually um, faux fur trims and not genuine fur. Um, so she was quite upset as well and said that she 100% uh, stood behind uh, my view on on the fur industry and assured me that there there will not be any more um, any more fur for sale in the gift store or in any of our affiliated sites. So. And that was just amazing. I was I was really uh, happy about that. What would you say to people who think that they can't make change for the lives of animals being exploited in the fur trade? Um, I would stress to people that one person can make a difference. Uh, it's so, so important to stand up. Don't ever be afraid to speak for those who can't speak for themselves because you might not always be successful. You might not always win every fight. But you'll never know if you don't try. Um, the way I see it, if I can save one animal, then it's all been worth it for me. We'd like to congratulate Sarah for her victory and encourage anyone interested in receiving literature about the fur trade or our solutions to contact us at furbearerdefenders.com. Jasmine Polsonelli is the youngest person to receive a lifetime membership to APFA, and it's for good reason. At 11, Jasmine is actively involved in advocacy work, including speaking to schools, media interviews, and campaigns. Through the pre-Christmas shopping rush, Jasmine spent 10 weekends in downtown Toronto, holding a silent vigil against the fur trade, specifically targeting a store that sold Canada Goose jackets. Jasmine joins us now to talk about her work and how she's been able to make a difference. Hi, Jasmine. Why did you decide to go stand around in the cold and tell people about the coyote fur trim on Canada Goose and other winter jackets? I don't think a lot of people know how they get the fur trim on these jackets. Before we began this campaign, we went to stores and asked the employees how they got the fur trim to see what their response would be. Many stores told us that the animals were humanely trapped and that they were helping the environment because there were too many coyotes. We were also told by some store owners that the fur was shaved like they do wool. We know that both answers they were giving were false. What that means to someone buying these jackets is that they are unknowingly supporting cruelty. Consumers are being given a bunch of, a bunch of unregulated terms like calling for green, all natural, and saying trapping is humane and a part of conservation. Through a lot of research, we found that none of these words were regulated. They are meaningless. I felt really bad for both the animals that were being trapped and the people buying these jackets. I wanted the opportunity to speak to people and let them know exactly what they are purchasing, 
what the animal had to go through, how fur is all about fashion, and nothing to do with keeping you warm. When we had started speaking to people during the campaign, many were very upset they had been misled. As a consumer, you have the right to know what you are buying. People don't like to be lied to. That's exactly what the fur industry is intentionally doing, and it's wrong. The vigils were very peaceful. You simply stood and spoke with people who were interested. Why do you decide on this method instead of shouting a slogan? Uh, well, this campaign was all about speaking to the consumer. Many people respond better to someone who they don't feel threatened by. This is always how my mom and I run campaigns. So we have to be approachable and use material that get people thinking and wanting to know more. For Bear Defenders was a great support to us by supplying posters and leaflets. We were standing directly in front of the store, a store that sold eight brands of outerwear that had fur trim. We had people hold non-graphic signs and hand out information to people passing by. We created a kind of library of information right outside the store, and we were very successful with many people stopping to speak to us. Some people passing by stopped and picked up a sign to join us. Some people took the information we gave them and went into the store asking questions. There was a great deal of support for what we were trying to accomplish. Because my mom was a wildlife rehabilitator, we developed a program called Giving Back the Fur, where people do can donate unwanted fur and fur trim to orphan wildlife. Because after speaking to us, pe many people no longer wanted any part of the fur and wanted, and wanted a way to turn a wrong into a right. They felt good knowing the fur would help nurture wildlife. How did you respond to people who were rude or showed no interest in what you had to say? Um, well, it doesn't bother me when people are rude or don't want to speak to us. Some people shouted out nasty things because we looked approachable. Many people were very kind and supportive. I don't concentrate on people who are not open to conversation. I concentrate on the people who want to know the truth. Even passing by the signs people were holding should have raised enough questions for people who want to find out even more on their own. Tell me about some of the victories you had during the campaign. Uh, we actually had about three to four people return their fur trim jackets after speaking to us over the 10-week campaign that we had. We had a great deal of people rethink their choice of what jacket they wanted to buy. And we were right there with a list of stores in the area that could shop that they could shop at for great alternatives. One gentleman came out of the store after purchasing a Canada Goose jacket and asked for a leaflet. I gave him one and thanked him for asking. While he held his new fur jacket, he read the leaflet I gave him, looked at the signs, then at me. Then all of a sudden, he turned around and started heading back towards the store. I watched him as he went into the store, showed the lady at the paying counter our leaflet, then handed her his new jacket and the receipt. After he got his money back for the jacket, he walked out of the store without his jacket and thanked me. I watched inside the store to see the lady giving the Canada Goose jacket to a man while shaking her head. It's the consumer's choice what they want to put on their body, and obviously that gentleman didn't want to buy into the fur fashion vanity. It was pretty exciting when people had returned their jackets. It's all about making an informed purchase. There are many compassionate people who thanked us for being out there. Otherwise, they would have felt horrible about buying a jacket that animals were killed for. How did it feel when you realized that someone had heard your voice, considered it, and made a real change in their attitude? Well, it really 
felt great that people are interested in what you were doing and want to listen. And it's even better when they change their mind in a positive way and there's one less of these jackets purchased. I know people are compassionate and I can see what that when I speak to them. And they are going to they're going to tell people what we just shared them. There's going to be an end to the fur trim fashion because people care. What would you say to anyone who feels that they are unable to make a difference for the lives of animals? Well, change takes time. I'm 11, and in the last 11 years, when my mom shows me how far we've come, it is clear that it is possible to create change. That's what gives me hope. The fur industry can't continue feeding people false information. We make these industries accountable for what they're telling people by exposing the truth. These industries want to try and discourage us and make us think that we can't change anything. Look around, because they're wrong. We have created a change, and we will continue as long as you never give up. That was Jasmine Polsonelli, a lifetime member of APFA, and, we hope, a sign of things to come from other youth in Canada. That's it for this week, folks. I'd like to thank all of our guests, as well as Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control, for his ongoing support of Defender Radio. Please share our podcast with your friends, family, and co-workers to help get the word out that change can happen, if we choose to stand up and be heard. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.